Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Talkin' Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we continue our conversation about universal horror films. This episode, we are talking about The Mummy. Specifically, Karis the Mummy. Yes. Karis the Mummy was uh, the antagonist of the Mummy films that began in the 40s with The Mummy's Hand in 1940. As opposed to Imhotep, who was played by Boris Karloff in the 1932 Mummy film, the original Mummy film. Was there a Mummy film before The Mummy in 1932? Um, the only one that I know of is uh, when Ernst Lubitsch was still making films in Germany. He had a silent film called The Eyes of the Mummy. Uh, I haven't seen it. I'm not sure if it's like a serious mummy film or if it's one of his comedies. Or I really know nothing about it. Hmm. It's in the public domain, so it's probably on YouTube. I know there was an alpha video DVD of it at one point. Yeah, because it's interesting because, you know, today we kind of think about the mummy as sort of just like a part of the pantheon of classic monster movie villains, like with vampires and werewolves and mummies. But mummies are just like this, such a specific kind of legend, I guess, as opposed to, you know, a vampire in which anyone can really be turned into a vampire or a werewolf with a bite. But a mummy is like, no, you have to be like, you know, buried for 3000 years and mummified in ancient Egypt with a curse placed upon you and then you can rise from the grave. Yeah. Um, and there's no real like specific like great literary text associated with the mummy right i mean there have been like stories about the mummy bram stoker even wrote one um but i mean for dracula you have dracula for frankenstein you have frankenstein but it's similar to uh the wolfman actually there's no like book that it comes from but the Wolfman and werewolves in general, they, you know, there's all this folklore about them yeah. that the movies can draw their uh, stories from. You know, legends of lycanthropy, of, about people, uh, you know, going crazy in the full moon and, you know, ravaging women and eating wild animals and acting like an animal. Yeah. But with mummies, it's it, it really started from the... There's a bit of an archaeological boom in the early 20th century. There were big, famous discoveries like the tomb of uh, Tutankhamun that were just dominating the headlines and stuff. So I feel like this was obviously a uh, sort of a, of a creative response to all of that. Well, especially because there was that curse. And there was a curse. So, yeah, what exactly was the Tutankhamun curse? Um, well, yeah, I'm not sure of the specifics of it, like who exactly died afterwards, but a lot of people associated with the discovery of the tomb, uh, ended up dying, uh, relatively soon after, I believe. And it's, I guess it's believed that it might've been like some, something with like the mold in the tomb. Well, there's a lot of, there's a like, lot of talk about mold in these Karis movies. That's, that's true. For sure. Um, but that would make sense, like if there, if you know, there was some sort of, yes, mold spores that they're breathing in when they entered in this tomb. Yeah, they've just been sitting there in an enclosed space for thousands of years, and all of a sudden, you just open this door and go in. Just start breathing it in. 
Yeah, so a, a lot of the things that we think about today as being hallmarks of what a mummy monster is didn't come from the original Boris Karloff 1932 mummy film, but were actually drawn from these Karis movies from the 40s. And it's interesting because uh, the Karis films are almost kind of like lesser uh, universal films in a, in a lot of ways. Um, would you budget. would you say that that's fair? Yeah. They're yeah, the low budget, and they're not really discussed in the same sort of uh, favor that like the Frankenstein movies or the Wolfman movies are. No, they're not held in much reverence at all. Um, and I kind of was part of that camp. Where I was like, oh, those mummy movies are all repetitive, and it's just he's just chasing people around and whatever. Until um, in 2015, I went to uh, the Monster Bash conference uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the theme the year I went was mummy movies. And they showed 16 millimeter prints of um, the 1932 Carl Freund, Boris Karloff mummy movie. And also a 16 millimeter print of The Mummy's Curse, which is the last of the series. Right. And something about watching it with an audience kind of just made it click with me. And maybe watching it on its own. Yeah. Because I think, like, that repetitive nature of them definitely comes through when you watch them all, like, back to back. Um, and really only in, like, the last couple, I feel like, it starts to get kind of uh, repetitive. But I think if you're just watching one on its own, it might feel more fresh. I could see that, because the past couple of days I watched all four of these. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I still feel they're very, they're very different from one another. There's a lot of similarities. Yeah. But there are distinct differences. Yeah, the, it them. doesn't. It, it definitely evolves from film to film. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, let's uh, go back to the beginning a little bit here. And so, like we were saying, in 1932, Carl Freund, who had been the cinematographer on Todd Browning's Dracula in 1931, um, he went on to make. He he went on to direct. The Mummy. And we talked in the Dracula episode about the similarities between that movie and Dracula. Um, and, but the, it was a success at the time? Yes. But they didn't immediately follow it up with any sort of uh, sequel. Whereas in the Dracula and Frankenstein film franchises, they created sequels. Uh, well, I feel like so the like the Frankenstein sequel came four years after the original Frankenstein. The Dracula sequel came five years after the original Dracula. Um, if you look at the timeline, if there was going to be that amount of space between the Mummy and its first sequel, that would have been the Lemleys would have already lost control. Right, they would have Universal. come in at around like thirty-seven or thirty-eight with the Mummy sequel. Yeah, and they weren't really interested in horror films at that time. Mm. Until Son of Frankenstein came out in 39. So it wasn't until like 35, 36 that Universal was sort of like looking at their films and being like, hey, why don't we do another Frankenstein movie? Frankenstein was good the first time around. Let's make a sequel. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the idea had been kicking around, but they hadn't really been able to, like, go ahead with it until that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were more... There aren't really a lot of sequels in that first wave. There's really just Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula's Daughter. They were more interested in, like, building up James Whale as a director and, like, not necessarily continuing characters, but, like, making, like, his career as a director viable and then making Karloff a star Mm. was a main priority. And they, at the time, they were like, well, yes, he was really great in Frankenstein and The Mummy. Let's, you know, see what else he can do within the range that they would let him. Let's create new iconic characters in the vein of Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy. And The Mummy was the one where he was billed as Karloff, the uncanny. And then, um, you know, for a while it was, he was just Karloff. Yeah. Like Greta Garbo was just Garbo. The only time Lugosi ever got that was on the Raven. Just billed as Lugosi. Karloff and Lugosi in the Raven. Cause mm. in, in the black cat, it was Karloff and Bella Lugosi. <laughs> <laughs> and Bella was probably not happy about that. He's like, why is, Boris get the special name treatment. So it wasn't until 1940 that uh, after the Lemleys had lost control of Universal, what kicked off the second wave? Son of Frankenstein. Son of Frankenstein was the first out of the gate, where they sort of it it, it had been like when when did Son of Frankenstein come out? Thirty nine. Thirty nine. So it was only it was a matter of like three years after Dracula's daughter and Son of Frankenstein. Um, where they, I guess, came around back to the idea of, like, you know, maybe we should do more of these horror movies. Yeah, because they were like, oh, that made money, and, oh, we own this company that owns the rights to these characters. Why don't we do something with them? Yeah. Which is a practice that continues to this day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, that's when, that's when those, uh, characters in those franchises really started getting milked yeah because then uh yeah the invisible man returns uh which i think is the best of the invisible man sequels with vincent price mm. uh that came out after son of frankenstein but just before the mummy so that and I, i'm not sure of the i don't remember if invisible woman was before or after the mummy's hand uh they were like right around the same time um so yeah, they were probably like, oh, well, okay, we brought back Frankenstein, we brought back the Invisible Man, what else we got lying around? Oh, the mummy, what can we do with the mummy? And whereas Son of Frankenstein is a direct sequel to Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, it carries on that same story. The Mummy's Hand is not really a sequel. No. Not really a remake. A reboot? How would you sort of... It's just, uh, it's just a different movie about a different mummy. It's like in 35 they did Werewolf of London and in 41 they'll do The Wolfman. Those are two completely separate werewolves, two separate stories. Right. The thing about uh, Mummy's Hand, though, that I always felt like it's it feels like it's very much in the same world and it's, almost a re- it's like almost a remake mm. of The Mummy because you have this I mean, they reuse a whole bunch of footage originally shot for The Mummy of the backstory of Karis. And it's like the same backstory as Imhotep. Yeah, the same shots. Um, and in a lot of shots, or in some shots, you can actually see Boris Karloff 
as opposed to Tom, Tom Tyler, Tyler, who was playing uh, Karis. Yeah, they kind of cut in new, like, close and medium shots of uh, Tom Tyler into them. Which, um, I think they do it well. The way it's, compared to some other cutting of stock footage later in the series. Right. I think cutting Tom Tyler into those flashbacks, I think they, I think they pull that off well. Yeah, uh, I, I, I would agree. What's interesting about those, uh, those flashbacks... Um, this is just sort of a little thing that I that I noticed in the in the mummy. There's the whole backstory of Imhotep and how he fell in love with uh, Anaximamun. 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 That's how they sort of pronounce it in the uh, the 1999 mummy film. They say Anaximamun. What do they say? Anaximamun, or something more along that lines. Instead of Anak Anak. Anxanamen. Anxanamen. Right. Anxanamen. <laughs> Odethay. Um, so there's the whole backstory of the two of them. They were in love. She died. Uh, Imhotep tries to bring her back from the dead, but that's, you know, against their religious laws, and it's a, you know, abomination against the gods and all that. And so they bury him alive. And, uh, when he's buried alive, the there are these slaves who are digging the hole, and the the high priest commands the soldiers to kill the slaves, and they throw all these spears down at them. And there's a, a moment where we see full, fully impaled uh, slaves with these uh, with these spears. Yeah. And I feel like it's like it's it was it's a little shocking because it's the most gory that those movies really ever get. And why do you think they were able to get away with that? Do you think there was any racial thing involved? Oh, I don't know. That I, I, yeah, I really don't know. Because it seems like an impalement is an impalement. Yeah. And there are so many things that like they had to cut. Yeah, for exactly. Weird random reasons. Exactly, and like... then it's like, but we're seeing like this, you know, full on. We're seeing the blood on their chests and the spear going right through them. But what's interesting is that they used that same footage in the mummy's hand in 1940, but they cut out the full impalement. Yeah. So something changed between those years. I mean, that's like well, the, the, the production code yeah, was more fully entrenched. Because 32, when the mummy was, that was pre-code. And then the mummy's hand, that's just... Well, we don't really call that anything. That was just code. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the code era, which lasted 30 years. So one of the major differences between Karis and Imhotep is that Karis is the mummy that we sort of think about when you think of uh, a mummy monster. He's a shambling, wrapped in gauze, undead mummy, walking around, strangling people. Yeah. Whereas in the original mummy, we see Boris Karloff wrapped in gauze for the first, like, minute and a half or something of that movie, and then he is... uh, looks more or less like a normal person more or less more or less and he's talking and he's intelligent and he has all of his faculties about him whereas Karis is a, a soulless husk of a of a beast soulless well we see later on he yeah. sort of gets a little bit more soul his uh he seems to have more feelings about who he is and what he wants yeah cuz in the mummy's hand he's basically just 
a bodyguard. Yeah. He's just, like, being used to protect um, Princess Ananka's tomb. Yeah. And then as it goes on and the sequel's The Mummy's Hand, he has other motives. And, but his backstory is, like, it's a little confusing and convoluted. Yes. Because it's... I'm not 100% on it. Because it doesn't really make sense. Because... And this is what's weird is that they used all this footage of Imhotep's death and burial and how it was like, it was against the gods and so they buried him alive. And that's usually where the story ended in the for the Imhotep. But for Karis, it's like, but then after they buried him alive, they decided to dig him back out again and keep him alive using these tana leaves. Yeah. Where if you boil three of them and give him give him the liquid on nights during the cycle of the full moon, then he'll keep his heart beating. But never give him nine Tantalese. No, give him nine, but don't give him more than nine. Give him nine to make him, like, get up and do stuff for you. Right. But more than nine, he'll be an uncontrollable monster. Is he ever given more than nine? No. (laughs) It's kind of like... um, I remember in a previous episode you talked about the gremlins thing where you introduce rules at the beginning of the movie so clearly at some point they those should rules be are going to be broken. Yeah, but yeah. no, they never give him more than nine. And I think it's only in The Mummy's Hand where they mention, yeah, like, it, don't do more than nine. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's confusing about it because I'm just like, okay, like, why are they keeping him alive? And it's because to protect this tomb. Yes. So that in case they need to keep people away from, fi- like keep people from finding Ananka's tomb they can just get him up and going and he'll take care of everybody mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's just uh, it's just weird because it's like we buried him alive but then we like dug him back out and are feeding him this tan of fluid I'm so confused about reason. why they killed because they buried him they had slaves bury him and they killed the slaves so that nobody would know where he was. Mm-hmm. And then they dug him back up. Yeah. <laughs> which I'm assuming they used other slaves for, or they just did it themselves. And then buried him somewhere else. Yeah, like at the foot like, of the mountain. Yeah, on the other side of the mountain. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, so it seems like instead of killing those slaves, they could have just been like, all right, well, he's buried. Good night. And then they leave and they're like, you know, oh, that's where he's buried. And, and then, then, then you move him, so, and then it's, yeah. Yeah, because nobody, what was the point of burying him twice? Because nobody would have known where, he, everybody who knew he was buried in the first place was dead. I mean, this is, it's it's a hodgepodge of a story, of a backstory, really. Yeah. Um, because they're using this, the Imhotep backstory, but like changing it to be this other thing. And it doesn't really make sense. And in, I think it was in the Karloff film, I think they talk about um, the god Isis. And in the, the, the Karis films, they repeatedly refer to Amun-Ra. Although I think, did they talk about Amun-Ra in the Karloff one as well? Like, they talk about separate gods? I mean, they were, it was like um, polytheistic. Yeah, I feel like they talk about Amun-Ra. Okay. And the, I think Ananka and Anxanaman might have been sisters, because they're both daughters of the pharaoh Amenophis. Right. But in, 
the mummy's hand, maybe not the mummy's hand, but I know that in at least one of the sequels, they refer to Ananka as the third daughter of Amenophis. So maybe she's the little sister of Hanks and Amun. Yeah, this is, I mean, I like to think that the the legends of Karis and Imhotep can exist in the same world side by side. And that, like, Mummy's Hand is a sequel to The Mummy, but just a different story within the same world and continuity, I guess. Okay. I like to think of all these universal horror films just existing in the same world. Yeah, that's how Abbott and Costello get to meet all of them later. Yeah. That was another one, Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy from the 50s, that I saw on 16mm at that convention. And uh, I've never been a huge fan of Abbott and Costello until I saw one of their movies with an audience. Because that is a big help for comedies. Right. They also had an, an Abbott and Costello tribute act. Oh, boy. And I watched their act, I think, I think I saw two of their shows that weekend, and then they were also just like walking around interacting with people throughout the convention and uh they were shockingly good <laughs> like they pretty much just did old Abbott and Costello routines but they also like interacted with the crowd well and had some improv moments and yeah so who played the mummy in the Abbott and Costello meets the mummy it wasn't Lon Chaney was it uh no um I think it was just a stuntman I'm not sure gotcha who maybe Eddie Powell because it wasn't oh, at a time when they were trying to, like, build up these horror icons at all. No, this was... It wasn't even Universal anymore. It was Universal International. They were just kind of doing what this group was doing in the early 40s. Like, oh, we got the rights to all these guys. Let's just throw them up on the screen with these other guys and mm-hmm. see what happens. The Abbott and Costello films, they were all kind of, like, in between, like, the classic Universal horror movies and then like in 54 they did creature from creature from the black lagoon creature from the black lagoon <laughs> sorry it's hard to say that <laughs> creature from the black lagoon creature from the black lagoon <laughs> uh um <laughs> yeah i don't know where that train was going but i got off <laughs> <laughs> um if you had to tell me the story of Karis. Taking into account all of the movies? Yes. Um, like, what's, like, a quick synopsis of his saga? Um, he was an ancient Egyptian who was buried alive and cursed to an immortal waking death that uh and he's used by these high priests to kill their enemies and he just uh, yeah i don't know something like that <laughs> okay well i mean like and how does it end like what's the beginning middle and end of this story like um i don't know i mean like cuz it starts out he's this young guy in love and it ends he's just he the mind collapses on him the monastery the monastery i'm sorry the monastery collapses on him yeah and he's buried in rubble and then apparently they're gonna bring him back to the uh to the museum yeah i feel like the story's not over no because why would that stop him 
No, I mean, he like he nothing else seems to stop him. He's been lit on fire twice and shows no signs of burn damage whatsoever. However, who's going to brew those tanner leaves? That's what the guy said, you know, like, if you kill me, you know, the secret of the tanner leaves will go with me. Because apparently he's, like, I don't know if I missed it, but are they like the last of, the, of that order of high priests? I guess, but he could, I mean, George Zuko, who plays Andoeb in The Mummy's Hand, he's pretty resilient. Because at the end of The Mummy's Hand, he, well, alright, so it starts yeah. out, Eduardo Cinelli plays the high priest. And he sort of, like, passes the torch to George Zuko. Yeah, and this is, like, how every one of these movies starts. Yeah. <laughs> with him passing the, the baton to another. Because at the beginning of The Mummy's Hand, we see George Zuko, like, going up those steps. Um, and it's sort of like he's, like, ascending to the high priesthood, almost. And then at the end of the film, he descends the steps after being shot. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of... I mean, for what this movie is, I kind of like how it starts with him going up the steps and it ends with him rolling down the steps. Um, and we think he's dead. Right. But no, the bullet merely shattered his arm, we learn in the follow-up. Yeah. He's like, yeah, the bullet didn't kill me and that fire didn't kill Karis and nothing really changed. And Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, the sequel, that's 30 years later. Karis has had time to heal, I guess. And also bulk up a little bit to the size of Lon Chaney Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, and George Zuko has aged terribly. And he passes a torch to uh, Turan Bay. And then things don't go well for Turan Bay. And then in the next movie, it's George Zuko again. Which is odd, because I'm fairly certain he died at the beginning of The Mummy's Tomb. He kind of just, like, nods off. And we assume he died, but apparently he went to no, sleep. No, you can't kill. You can't keep him down. No, apparently he just went to sleep. And then he's passing the baton to John Carradine. Yes, in um, in the Mummy's Ghost. And John Carradine, he dies at the end of that, and he is legitimately like Durambe, dead. Yeah. And then twenty-five years later, we just got these two guys. Yeah, and we don't know where they. We assume that they came from the high priest. Yeah, like, so we can assume that there are other priests. Yeah, they keep, who he keeps recruiting stuff. them. Yeah. He... Um, well, it's like Isis. Not the god I referred to earlier. It's like like the terrorist group ISIS, perhaps. Oh, oh, I'm in I'm in ancient Egypt. You yes, say ISIS, right. I think the god the goddess ISIS. Um, like these are probably just people who are just like uh, young, disgruntled, frustrated and... youth that they that are brought into this priesthood. Yeah, because like uh, Peter Coe's character in the Mummy's Curse, who's sort of like I mean he's got the fez, so he I'm assuming he's the high priest, and uh, Martin Koslek's character, he's. He's clearly just German. I guess he might be... I think he might be playing a Frenchman because it's they're in Cajun country uh, for some reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the location but... <laughs> just suddenly changes into a different region of the... Yeah, Yeah, but like he's clearly not Egyptian or even trying to pretend to be Egyptian. Um, he's just a recruit. And... Um, it's like they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're finding recruits wherever they can find them. No. Yeah, because I mean, like the the order of uh, 
what's it called? Amon, no, not Amon Ra. It's uh, Karnak. Karnak, yeah. In the first couple movies, it's Karnak, and then in the Mummy's Ghost, Arkham. Yeah. And then I'm not sure if they say in the Mummy's Curse if it's Karnak again or if no. It's, it's, still it's Arkham. Ar- it's Arkham. Okay, Arkham, so it, just, yeah. it goes to Arkham and stays Arkham. <laughs> um, but I mean that's you know people, that's just language evolves over time. Yeah, over the course of uh, 55 years that this that this series takes place over the course of 55 years. Yeah, and or we're at not... least I think maybe even like 50. There might have been, like, a couple years in between. Yeah, I don't uh, think they specify between Tomb and Ghost how long it's been. Yeah, but it's been at least, like, a year, maybe two. Yeah, because, like, like, the doctor, well, the professor right. in Ghost, he was in Tomb, and he doesn't seem he doesn't seem to have aged that much. No, but, it, but they talk about it like, you know, it happened, it wasn't just, like, yesterday. You know, mm. this was, like, a while ago. So I, I would guess at least a year I would tack on. And, so 56 years, let's say. And Tomb very definitely takes place when it was made because we got world war ii in there because oh, did they reference world war ii well the main character gets that telegram where you have to report to fort meyer or right, whatever it that's was, right yeah 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 and he's gonna be in the medical corps yeah so if we <laughs> you see that's the timeline of of this is all crazy because the original or the mummy's hand the mummy's hand should be 19 19- 12 should if we if we say that 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 because that came out in 1940 yes there's and we assume when we're watching it like oh this takes place in modern day so that should be taking place it's in very 1940. it's very 1940 yeah the way everybody's talking all the banter and the wisecracks yeah and then and i'm in, free do they mention tutankhamen do they uh, Yes, they do. They said this will be the greatest discovery since Tutankhamun. Which was 1922. Okay, so it can't take place in 1912, that's for sure. Could we have found a flaw in this series? <laughs> a continuity error? I don't think what? so. Um, no, this has to make sense. Yeah, if if, if, uh, if Mummy's Hand takes place in 1940, the year that it came out, and its sequel, Mummy's Tomb, takes place 30 years later, so he's being called That's to go to Vietnam. Yes, exactly. In 1970, yeah. And then we take then it's like a year later, so that's like 1971, and then we jump 25 years uh, by the time we get to Curse. So that takes place in 1996. Well, I don't really think Curse takes place at all. What do you mean by that? I think that in the ending of The Mummy's Ghost, which might have the best ending of any of them, hmm. where Karis has finally been reunited with his love right. and walks away with her and she slowly turns into, like, from a young woman into this, this rotting corpse in his arms and mm-hmm. they go down into the swamp. The Mummy's Curse... I think it could just be like, as Ananka is dying, she dreams that. She dreams Mummy's Curse. Can you think of any other reason why they would go into a swamp in Mapleton, Massachusetts, and then come up 25 years later in a swamp down in Cajun country in Louisiana? (laughs) Tectonic plates shifted. Okay. Yeah. I'm really open to any explanation. (laughs) 
I feel like the the, the Karis series needs another film. It needs a, a final film to uh, to put an end to this. Tie it all together. Tie up all the loose ends. I don't know if we want to go around encouraging people to make more Universal Mummy movies after what happened earlier this year. No, I think we should be encouraging them to make a real Mummy movie. Okay. It would look exactly like those... Um, they do like a lost skeleton of cadaver kind of thing where they would like make it look like a film from that era. Maybe even get, or make it look like, would it take place in between ghost and curse? And it would Mm, have the bodies being transported. That would, that's interesting. See, so that like, yeah, well the bodies you could, I mean, it could, if you, if you set a movie in between ghost and curse, it could be the story of. Karis and Ananka coming out of the swamp and rampaging around, and by the end, but and they make a tear all the way down the east coast, and uh, you know by the end of the movie they wind up in another swamp. They get to, they somehow make it west to the Mississippi River, and then they take a steamboat down, and <laughs> yeah, down the river, <laughs> and it's Karis protecting the body of Ananka on a steamboat, and he's just like. Oh man, this is amazing! Uh, so like the crew like, uh, and everybody. Jason is takes like, Manhattan, but like good. <laughs> yeah, um, and like people are like being killed at night, like out on like on the ship, and like all the passengers are like something's th- something spooky's going on there. <laughs> <You're Like, right. laughs> um, and you get the backstory of uh, Peter Coe and Martin Koslek's characters from Curse. Yeah, you, like yeah, you introduce them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is going to be brilliant. I can't wait to do this. Yeah, there's definitely a missing mummy movie. There must be fan fiction or something out there of this. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Mummy fan fiction? Yeah, I mean, there's so many questions left unanswered. Well, we're, we'll write. We're, we'll, yeah. we're, we are uh, writing it right now as yeah. we speak. That's sort of. Um, I went online because I was curious about Tana Leaves. If it ever existed, yeah, and like there was nothing on Wikipedia except for links to various mummy movies, and I just googled it, and one of the first things that came up was, um, it was a forum on healingwell.com, which seems to be just people have like health issues and they'll say stuff, and somebody had written an entry, and it starts with like, "Hi, my name is Karis, and I'm really glad I found this forum," (laughs) and he writes this whole thing about like, now how many tannin leaves can I have? How much is too much? And all this. And it's like, it's pretty lengthy actually. And, uh, I don't know. It was just pretty amusing. So there, there is sort of like, I mean, that's not really fan fiction, but right. I think we should, uh, create a, a, uh, new age healing company and sell Tana fluid, uh, as a rejuvenating supplement on that same forum, actually somebody in response to it in that, in that thread, uh, they ended up posting pictures of some products that they apparently had made. And somebody had had done fake tana leaves. I don't know what they used for them. It was some sort of tea. Mm. And they also had wolfsbane, which was real wolfsbane, which you, if you grow, apparently you should use gloves and stuff because it's very actually poisonous. And uh, you probably shouldn't grow it because, especially not here where there's a lot of cats around. Because mm. it's basically just a toxic plant. You could you could totally sell 
Tana fluid to people. Oh, like, I would totally buy it. Made with, you know, <laughs> Egyptian Tana leaves. Yeah, I'd sell it at Adirondack Natural Foods and yeah, stuff. Totally. And, yeah, totally. It's brilliant. So why don't we uh, sort of get, go back to the beginning here? We're kind of running away with ourselves. Uh, let's sort of like just... Like we do. <laughs> go, uh, go through these four uh, mummy films here, the Karis movies. We've got Mummy's Hand in 1940, we've got Mummy's Tomb in 1942, Mummy's Ghost, and Mummy's Curse, both in 1944. So let's start with Mummy's Hand. Overall, what do you what do you think about this movie? As compared to, because it's it's hard to sort of like, because the first Mummy movie, the the Mummy 1932, is so iconic in its own right. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great film. Um, it took me a while to come to that belief, but yeah, I'll agree with that. What do you think about the mummy's hand? Like, do you think it it's a uh, it's sort of where do you place it among the the universal classics? I I love the mummy's hand. It's of all the mummy movies, I probably I or I definitely watched it more than any of the others. Um, I got the VHS for five dollars in high school, and uh, it was a little while before I got all the other movies. Um. And I just watched it over and over again. It's just, it's a fun movie. And then you got these two guys who are having an adventure. And um, there's no, I mean, I guess depending on people's personal taste and humor and stuff, there's no real annoying character to me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and you've got. Even though you have characters like Babe and uh, Dr. Or not, he's not Dr. Mr. Silvani, who are these sort of like. Yeah, and a he's comical character, like but they Cecil... never crossed the line to, into annoying. Yeah, and Silvani's played by Cecil Calloway, who had been in The Invisible Man Returns as that great, uh, the inspector who's always puffing his cigar to see the outline of the Invisible Man. Mm. Um, and like the, the love interest in the Mummy's Hand, it's it doesn't get in the way of anything really. It just kind of, I don't know. You got all these likable people. It spends a lot of time building them up. Yeah. And it's just the last, like, 20 minutes or so where it's like, holy shit, people are dying. Yeah, they do a really good job of uh, making you care about the characters more than any of the other films that would follow. Uh, okay. But I mean, like, what I mean is, like, we're really, uh, you know, we're invested more into their ongoing story, yeah. even without the inclusion of the mummy that yeah. they get to. Like, I couldn't say that with any of the other... Characters. So that when Karis is carrying the girl away at the end, we're actually like, no, not her. It's not just like, oh, there's just some damsel in distress. Right, yeah. It's not, like, because it's like they are, because the characters are interesting and they are fun to watch and, uh, you know, you want to see, you know, they're just on this. I want to see Babe get that rock trick right. Yeah. And I hope everything works out with him and Boopsie. His, uh, his little dancing good luck charm there. Good old Boopsie. Um, yeah, I think The Mummy's Hand is probably the quintessential mummy movie. I think it has, like, all the elements that make, that, that you sort of imagine when mm. you think of a mummy movie. Because this is the only one that, like, actually really takes place uh, in Egypt where you have, like, the shambling wrapped mummy. Yeah. Because the original mummy takes place in Egypt. But it's, you know, it's not like it's the killer mummy on the loose scenario. And this is the one where it's like, we are in, we are among the tombs. And, you know, it's the mummy is out there 
in among the sands and he's coming to get you. Uh, and it has the adventure elements, it has the horror elements. It sort of is like, I feel like, the the one that kind of sets the tone for what a mummy movie is. Yeah, and if I, I think if anybody was to look at universal horror as a whole, like if you wanted to explain to them like the difference between the early 30s cycle and the 40s cycle, you would show them the mummy in the mummy's hand. Yeah. And here's the mummy with its sort of like dark poetic style and it's it's slow but it's like creepy slow mm-hmm. and it's just like this mood building and then you got the mummy's hand where everything's kind of like light and Snappy, boisterous yeah. and we're doing magic tricks like here look over here we're doing this we're doing that yeah. and like you know we've got like that 40 snappy dialogue and the all that yeah yeah there's plenty of comic relief in in the in the 30s ones i mean especially like in the james whale movies and stuff but not I mean, it sort of it takes over the mood of the whole movie. It's like a it's a fun movie, right? This like in the '30s, it was like let's go to the movies and watch something and get creeped out. In the '40s, it's like let's go and just watch a good old monster movie, <laughs> like just watch them chase each other around and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of movie that like Indiana Jones would later be in, inspired by. In an interview, Spielberg once said the Mummy's Hand was probably the foremost influence on his filmmaking style. Really? No. No, okay. Oh. <laughs> well, I was going to say, that doesn't sound right. I think, um, I don't know. Never mind, sorry. <laughs> um, another thing that I think is interesting when you sort of compare the first cycle to the second cycle, I feel like one thing that's interesting about this movie is that you can tell that there's been time, time has passed from those first movies that, that Universal made to this one, because now there's almost like these little uh, Easter eggs or homages to those original films. For instance, uh, the high priest at the beginning of the movie, we hear a wolf howling in the distance, or a jackal, Ooh. I should say, and he says, children of the night. And it's like, and that's like right at the beginning of the movie, and it feels like, I don't know, it's like, oh, we're back to that. Or, like, we're... There's a nostalgia for the original films already in in this movie. Yeah, and the whole idea of the full moon kind of ties it to Werewolf of London, where they're trying to grow that plant by the light of the full moon and everything. And mm-hmm. and then um, the when, when Karis first starts to move, one of the professors even proclaims He's alive. And it just feels like it's uh there it feels like they're just having a lot of fun with the the tropes that had already been established. It also feels like um this movie has uh I don't know, it feels bigger than the original mummy. Like the sets are bigger and more extravagant. And well it was a a very low budget picture. Uh it was produced by Ben Pivar who was sort of like, he would be in charge of the productions at Universal that were not necessarily bargain basement, but just do them, you know, like as quickly and cheaply as possible just to grind them out. Um, But because it was, it's a studio film, they were able to use sets left over from other things. Uh, The most notorious in this film is uh, a set from the James Whale film, Green Hell, which is basically that big, great temple set at the end of the film yeah now, i've never seen green hell 
and I it only ever comes up when people are like, oh, and in this movie they used that set from Green Hell. Oh, and in this other movie they used that set from Green Hell. And I really want to see Green Hell. For some reason, even though James Whale is a very popular filmmaker, some of his films still aren't readily available, I think, because people always make the assumption, like, oh, well, horror fans like James Whale, so let's just keep putting out his horror films over and over again. But really, it's like, well, yeah, we're horror fans, but we love James Whale. We want to find out more about him. So, so, let's see so Green Hell wasn't a horror movie. It was like a jungle just... adventure film. Okay. Um, I think it was one of his last films before he retired. Hmm. Um and they just, you know, they had this big set. It's like the, um, that living room set from the Black Cat. That it's just, it was from something else originally, and they just keep reusing it over and over, and you just, it pops up in film to film. Basically, whenever there's a big temple set. Yeah. And because it, it is interesting, and that, that was the set that really made me sort of like be like, man, like there, it feels so much bigger. Well, there's and that great shot. Yeah. When Karis carries the heroine into it, um, like at the beginning of the climax, really. Mm hmm. Or, it's like a, a crane shot, I believe, where it just pulls back and you see the expanse of the uh, of the set and everything, and it's it's a great shot. Yeah, and it, it's just funny because I was thinking like rather naively, I suppose that like oh they built this whole big set and like we barely spend much time in, in this thing, and I would think that they would use it more, but it makes sense that like they've been getting you know they're using that they've been getting plenty of use out of the set, yeah, not just I mean, in this movie. And I'm sure that like the like the Cairo Street set, they probably used that for a bunch of different movies. Yeah, like the yeah, beggar and everything, yeah. and the whole bar scene. That's probably just yeah, just a yeah. yeah anytime they need a bar, a bar set, or anything. Yeah. But they use it well, and I mean, I would love that just to have all these sets built, and you just go and you make a few minor alterations every time you make a movie, and it's like a whole new thing. Yeah, totally. And uh, I mean, studios don't really work that way much anymore. Um, I, earlier this week, I watched um, a film for the first time called Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. And there's a scene with uh, an Egyptian tomb in it. And this is kind of in the background. At one point, Linnea Quigley comes out of it and does. Uh, she dances nude with two chainsaws. And it's it's a neat scene. But it's weird. On the tomb, there's like. Well, like the, this big like Egyptian coffin, um, there's a face on the front of it, and I was listening to the commentary, and it's actually Grace Jones's face because they got it from when the movie Vamp with Grace Jones, like a vampire comedy, uh, when that was done shooting, they just kind of like took this tomb from that movie and put it in this movie, because hmm. it was made by these people who just you know they work around LA, they know a yeah. lot of different people who work on sets and stuff, and they're like, oh, can I use that and Oh, can can you grab something from over there and I can use it in my movie and, um, so like, it, if you're part of that community, I guess it can happen. Yeah. When you're very very low budget, but um, well, like um, I mean, a, a modern the modern I don't know example I can think of right now is uh, I mean Lucasfilm and Disney right now are making a Star Wars movie every single year, and uh, they shoot primarily out in uh, Pinewood Studios in England, and. So they should never destroy any sets ever. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that set stuff is reused because, you know, once you build the Falcon, you've got the Millennium Falcon. You don't need to, you know, build it again. You're going to be using it in movie after movie. Do they have standing sets from the original Star Wars film? No, I don't, Aside from I don't think that so. desert 
town or whatever. Oh, yeah, that would that would be the only one. Yeah, the uh, the the Lars Homestead in Tunisia mm. is still up, and there are certain uh, other places that that uh, still exist. Um, but yeah, the Lars Homestead is really like the one I think. How do you feel about Babe Jensen in the Mummy's Hand? I like Babe Jensen. Okay, me too. I think he's like <laughs> I think he's like the 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 hero in the end. He kind of does everything in the end. Uh, Steve Bannon. Oh wait, no, not Steve Bannon. <laughs> Steve Banning. <laughs> you know, if we if anybody's been paying attention to politics these days, uh, as soon as uh, you start watching this, and it's like, oh, there's uh, Steve Bannon, and you're like, wait, what is Steve Bannon? No, Steve Banning. Um, yeah, he kind of I don't know. In the end, he kind of uh, becomes a bit useless, where he's like sort of. Um, in he's like trying to find this hidden passageway. Meanwhile, Babe's already out there, like you know, shooting down the the high priest and running into the, you know. Yeah. He um, I mean, he does set the mummy on fire at the end. And he sets the mummy. Steve does. Steve does, yeah. But Babe like shoots at the he Babe tries to. Yeah. Steve kind of just gets knocked away for a little while. So, but but Steve, yeah, he picks up the torch and. They're a team. They do what they can. I don't know. They got, the... mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, I I like Babe, and I feel like some of the there's a lot of negative reviews of these mummy movies out there, and some people like they do not like Babe. Uh, I think he makes the movie like so much more enjoyable to watch. Yeah, and I um the actor uh, Wallace Ford. Growing up, I watched the Ape Man with Bela Lugosi over and over and over again. The Ape Man, the film starring Bela Lugosi. I didn't watch a movie with Bela Lugosi. Like, the two of us watched The Ape Man together. That would have been great. <laughs> but he was, like, the wisecracking reporter hero of The Ape Man. And, like, that's how I knew him first. And then, like, later I saw him in, like, Freaks and um, The Lost Patrol and uh, John Ford's film, The Informer. John Ford also did The Lost Patrol. But he's in John Ford's film, The Informer, as one of the main characters. It's, it's a rare, like, dramatic role for him. And he does it really well. Uh, and Shadow of a Doubt also, in which he also plays like a kind of wisecracking photographer. Right. Okay. Yeah, I forgot that he was in Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah, he um he impresses me in this movie and he also impresses me in uh the the follow-up, The Mummy's Tomb. Yeah. Cuz he kind of he brings a certain gravitas to it, which is surprising cuz he like because we we know him as sort of a goofball, when we sort of see him in Mummy's Tomb as being very burdened and serious it uh i don't know there's it, he he brings something to it and there's a realism there too because i mean like he's still like a friendly guy yeah and he's like a likable guy but i mean like that is what like this wisecracking character would be 30 years later he's just like this old friendly guy yeah who's clearly very concerned and uh nobody pays attention to his warnings mm-hmm uh, so who played uh, Steve Bannon? Banning. <laughs> I keep, keep going to say Bannon. Uh, uh, Dick Ferran. Dick Ferran. Now, would you think it's fair to describe his look, just the way that he looks and sort of carries himself a little bit, as sort of like a discount Jimmy Stewart? Or is that unfair? I never really thought that. I don't know. Because to me, he looks a lot like Jimmy Stewart. I think he just... Um... This is true. A lot of uh, of a lot of the leads of these '40s films, he just looks like this, like bland, 
guy. <laughs> and he's a likable guy. He's a good actor, and he does a great job in it. Right. But like, there's nothing really distinct about him. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a shame because he does a good job in the movie. He does, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, there, there's, you know, yeah. There's a lot of uh, fun stuff. I think also the, um, I mean, Mr. Savani and his daughter. Uh, what's his daughter's name? Marta. Mar- Mar- oh, Marta. Yeah, that's it. Both of them are great too. Yeah. And what? <laughs> what's okay? What's up with uh, Marta and her trick gun? The little uh, the looping because obviously because like you know there's a few shots where it's clearly like eighty yard yeah the, the the dialogue was recorded after the fact and you can totally tell she goes like I'll show them I'll fix them with my trick gun and she grabs this gun and then she shows up at uh, Steve and Babe's place and proceeds to like shoot her quote unquote trick gun yeah through a door um so clearly there's no trick to it like it's a real gun i think maybe did they just throw that line in there after the fact to be like well we gotta we can't have her just going around threatening with like a real gun we're gonna say this is actually a fake gun even though clearly like yeah like i don't have any like um I mean, my main source on the making of these films is the the book universal horrors um and there's nothing in there about like that line, which is the first from the first time I watched it, that was a line that always like leaped out at me because it's so blatant. Like yeah. it shows her face and her lips are not moving. <laughs> yeah. Um. And I feel like it must have just been like a censorship thing. Like they don't want people to think she has a real gun, or maybe just like, oh well, you know, this is kind of like a kids movie. We we don't want them to think like she's like because in the next, without that line, she shows up at their hotel in the next scene it starts shooting yeah yeah so i feel like kids would be like oh my god this lady's crazy yeah i think it was a way to just soften that yeah but it just comes across so weird yeah if, if it had been recorded better if they hadn't done it over a shot where you see her face i feel like it wouldn't even have been an issue but because it's just like so blatant <laughs> yeah it, it just jumps out at you um i guess the last cast member uh, to talk about who is somebody who really uh, kind of gets overlooked in the pantheon of horror icons is Tom Tyler you know he was the first to play the mummy as we really sort of think of him as that shambling murderous mummy mm. um, but he's not really uh, you know of any sort of of the ilk of like a Lon Chaney Jr. who would take over the role um, so, and I don't really know anything about him. Who was Tom Tyler? He, uh, he had been in some serials. Um, he was, he was the original Captain Marvel, I believe, in the serial The Adventures of Captain Marvel. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Um, I don't know much about him either. I know that he had arthritis, like crippling arthritis later in life. And, um, he might've already been suffering from it when he was playing the mummy, uh, which would have been ironic considering like the way the mummy holds his arm and shambles about um yeah i don't really know much about tom tyler except that he does a really fine job pantomiming the mummy did he do any other horror roles aside from stock footage and mummy sequels uh i don't think so did he i i I don't know i uh i'm asking you (laughs) Um, just because it's odd because Universal was always so, uh, 
determined it seemed to cast to to build up these these actors as being horror icons and just cast them in whatever the the ghoulish role was uh you know your lon cheney's your john carradine's your vincent price your karloff bogosi I mean, he's got 182 acting credits on IMDb. Well, we won't go through them all right now. Ending in 56. Most of it uh, in the 50s is TV. He was in several John Ford films. Uh, Not really big parts. Um, He was in Stagecoach the year before The Mummy's Hand. Oh. He played a character called Luke Plummer. Is that the character John Wayne fights at the end? I can't remember. Yeah, I don't remember either. I don't really remember a lot of names from the stagecoach. No, not at all. <laughs> he was a, he had a he was uncredited in Gone with the Wind. He was uncredited in The Grapes of Wrath as somebody putting handcuffs on Jane, on John Carradine's character in that. So he's in all these classic films, but just, but just sort of drifting through. Yeah, and those were before The Mummy's Hand. Um, yeah, that's crazy. But then the year after The Mummy's Hand, he was Captain Marvel. And a ton of low-budget so, westerns. So he's one of the first, the very first on-screen superheroes. That's pretty cool. He's someone we should probably look into later another day. I don't know... Uh, we'll do a Tom Tyler month. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how movies. many Tom Tyler films are worth watching the whole thing for him. Yeah, well, maybe, like, you know, it'd be fun to, like, watch through stuff like Grapes of Wrath and... Uh, Drums Along the Mohawk. Yeah, and just be like, you know, try to find, try to spot him. Yeah, because he, he's uncredited in Drums Along the Mohawk. It says he plays Captain Morgan. It's like It'll be like Where's Waldo of classic films. Wasn't there a Captain Morgan... In Cutthroat Island. Oh, I don't know. You may know more than I, because you may have just listened to that episode. But uh... <laughs> yeah, but I'm not. It's not worth talking about Cutthroat Island anymore. No, not at all. <laughs> um, so yeah, Tom Tyler did not return to the role in the sequel to uh, The Mummy's Hand because some uh, some big stuff had happened in between The Mummy's Hand and its follow up. Which there was two years later that the Mummy's Tomb came out, or yeah, the Mummy's Tomb came out. Uh, so what happened in that time? What well, big stuff? Well, um, there was a new kid on the block. Yeah, a uh, a new kid on the block with an old name. Yes, um, born Creighton Cheney. Creighton. Creighton Cheney. Wow, I never knew that. Yeah, um, he eventually changed his name to Lon Cheney Jr because he felt that he'd probably get more acting jobs if he used that name. And he did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that really uh, was a pretty smart uh, move for him. Yeah, I- I'm not sure what year he changed. I know he started making films in 1932, just two years after his father's death. His, his father, Lon Chaney, um, did not really want him to pursue a show business career. And um, he did plenty of stuff. Uh, stuff beforehand but I think it was just like in the depths of the Great Depression he was like well maybe I could make some money just doing uh, you know like the family business kind of thing mm-hmm. um, eventually he changed his name and uh, eventually he 
got the part of Lenny in Of Mice and Men for Hal Roach uh, in 1939. And a year later, uh, also for Hal Roach, he was a caveman in uh, 1 million BC. And then um, that's when, uh, when Universal was like, hey, let's, uh, let's do some stuff with this guy. Uh, they tested him out. They did a, a very low-budget film called Man-Made Monster, which I really like. Um, in 1941, and later that year, because they thought he did well in that, he became the Wolfman. Right. And that made him a horror superstar. Not only the new Lon Chaney, but also the new Karloff. Like, Universal was like, well, we got this new guy. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go see you go play some butlers. We got this new guy up here. He's going to be the star of everything. Um, yeah, we've got a nice role for your herding cats over there, Belgo. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, so Lon Chaney Jr. Um, he was the Wolfman, and uh, you know eventually he would basically play all that he played the Frankenstein's monster and the Ghost of Frankenstein. He played Son of Dracula, and he did uh, the Inner Sanctum series for Universal, which they were all based on these. Uh, radio horror dramas that they'd done um but yeah in 1942 he uh he went to jack pierce's workshop uh and uh he became karis the mummy for the remainder of the series yeah and i think it's do you feel like lon cheney's talents are somewhat wasted on karis Because he doesn't really have much to emote, other than I'm going to, <laughs> I have other than I have a hard time walking, and I'm going to strangle you now. I'm not sure. Is it a waste of Lon Chaney Jr.'s talents, or is it if a different actor had been in the role, they might have made more of it? I don't know. That's a good Which, question. Now Chaney, I I think is actually underrated as an actor he had a very distinct range and within that range he was very very good um but i think i mean if if karloff had played karis i don't know it's hard to say because he's not really given much to do uh he has his moments Mm -hmm. um i don't know that's a really hard question to answer I mean, he definitely, uh, he's a, he's a, a bit, he's a giant bulk of a man. Yeah. He's got that Broderick, Car- uh, he's got that Broderick Crawford body. <laughs> yeah. That hot bod, <laughs> hot Broderick bod. Oh my. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, the, he definitely, I mean, he definitely, uh, there are moments where I'm just where I, I do feel like oh he's doing something really cool there with the way that he's moving his body, but I just you know I look at him in like the Wolfman and he has this like and he's great in that like as the mon- as the as the actual werewolf he's very physical he's very, he's moving and he's jumping around and yeah like he shaking feels like and... he's turned into an animal you yeah know? and like he's got that wild look in his eye and that was his favorite character the mummy was his least favorite character yeah and i can see why because it's like he, he doesn't have he's just an, unfortunately doesn't have much to uh to work with you know it's like okay 
shamble over there. <laughs> and so he drags his leg and holds his arm up and walks over there. And it's like, okay, now walk over there. <laughs> and then he walks over there. Okay, now lay down in this uh, sarcophagus and slowly rise up. I'm like, okay. It's definitely one of the worst things about being under contract to a studio. It's like he was cast in that film. He's the lead, uh, billing-wise. He's the lead of all these films. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's, they say they say shamble, he shambles. <laughs> yeah. And it's like you can barely even make out that it's him under all the makeup. And it was a very uh, arduous process to apply that makeup every day. It looks like it. I mean, it, I mean, it looks like it's... That makeup looks like uh, it would not be pleasant to wear mm. because it just feels like your whole face is in, you can't move any of your facial muscles it's just caked in there and it's all in your hair is matted back and stuff it just like looks uncomfortable and um, I mean the, the wolfman makeup you know is also uh, pretty difficult to deal with but I think just because he had so much more he could do with that character, he would look forward to playing that character. He saw, he referred to the Wolfman as his baby. Hmm. Uh, and the mummy, every time there'd be a new Karis movie, he'd be like, oh my God. All right. <laughs> All right. Give me, give me a few pints and then I'll sit in that chair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's like, why not be drunk on the set if that's what you're doing all day? <laughs> yeah, Totally. Um, so what's cool about Mummy's Tomb is that it takes place 30 years later. And, I mean, it doesn't look like any time has passed at all. There, you know, so, I mean, the, the, the time, they, they make no attempt to make it feel like, okay, this is 30 years into the future in any sort of way. Um, but what's cool is that they bring back most of the cast from the previous movie, or at least... Well, the two main The two main. Was there, I thought maybe there was a third, but... Well, there's a photograph of Peggy Moran's character because she dies before the movie starts. Yeah, which I, th- I thought was kind of interesting. And they introduce uh, Steve Banning's sister who is there just to be killed in a scene. And I felt like that was probably written to be Marta. But then they couldn't get the actress back for whatever reason. So they were just like, oh, then we'll just cast a different person and change it to his sister. That makes sense. I'm not sure if that's possible. And that actress is the she played Mrs. Hudson in all the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes films, so she was at Universal anyway. So it makes sense that they just threw her in there and be like, "Oh, there was a third. The, the the High Priest was came back." Yes. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, so there's three cast members. Yes. Who uh who are back from, uh, Mummy's hand. Her death, uh, the murder of the sister, in uh the Mummy's tomb. Um, I read a review earlier today in a book called Terror on Tape, because back in the 90s, um, before the internet, there were a lot of books that were just full of movie reviews, and they would tell you, like, oh, this is available on VHS from this company, and stuff like that. So in this one, the review of The Mummy's Tomb, they mentioned that the Universal VHS from the early 90s, which I had, uh, apparently her death was cut. Huh. Which I, I don't remember that not being there because I've watched it on the Legacy DVD set more. Um, but, I mean, they just... Well, they didn't cut it for time because the movie's only yeah. that long. <laughs> I'm not sure why they would cut that. Um, but, I mean, they refer to her as being dead. It's not like that character just disappears or anything. But it's that's it, it seems like an odd cut to make. 
It is. I mean, it's it's her death is somewhat upsetting because she just seems so innocent and, you know, she's protective of her uh, her little brother. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, it's always not pleasant to watch an old woman be killed, especially strangled. Who do you like to see killed? Um, what is pleasant to you? No, I mean it's just, <laughs> you know, I mean sometimes I don't know. It's just like it's just easier to watch younger people be killed that's true it's and the same thing would i would say for like animals any movie where like an yeah. animal is killed that's always way more upsetting than a human yeah or like kids like that's more yeah. upsetting yeah but all those stupid regular adults you know we don't care about them i tried watching pet cemetery shortly after my nephew was born and about five minutes in even before anything happened i shut it off because i'm like you know what i don't think i can deal with this right now mm. it was weird that is weird yeah you're getting older. Yeah. More life things are happening to you. <laughs> Speaking of getting older, uh, the elderly version of Steve Banning. I really like his performance as that. Like, yeah. He plays old well. He reminds me of uh, Jedediah... Je- <laughs> he reminds me of Jedediah Leland in Citizen Kane, Joseph Cotton, when he plays more right. man. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 Because that, that's what's cool about it is like, so they brought back these these three actors from the previous film, it takes place 30 years later, and they aged them up with uh, with makeup. And uh, it's something about, I don't know, I mean, because you'll see some modern movies today. Uh, what's it? Oh, uh, J. Edgar. I was going to say J. Example. Edgar, Army Hammer's uh, eyes. Army Hammer and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Clint Eastwood's J. Edgar, where they, they age up those actors. And the makeup just doesn't seem right. Even though, like, makeup technology and the abilities that you're able to achieve with makeup has advanced so much. But something about it just looks more fake than something like this, which is a much more subtle uh, makeup effect. Um, But I think maybe because it's all in black and white, it just sort of helps sort of blend everything together. I don't know. I would say And I think... Well, Wallace Ford, he's, I have no idea what age the actor actually is. From the the early 30s to the mid 40s, which that's the time period when he made movies that I've seen, he looks like he's like 40 the entire time. Mm -hmm. Like he's just one of those guys who he could play any age really. So I don't know how off he is. And I think it helps Dick Fran uh, as Steve Banning that he's wearing glasses like that might just do that might hide anything with the eyes because my main issue with army hammer and jay edgar was they should have put like contacts in maybe give him some like fake like cataracts or something he's got this these young boy eyes Mm. playing like a 70 year old man or something yeah it just makes it a little awkward yeah um but yeah this uh it's it's kind of nice seeing them aged up and like i said before you know like uh babe hansen Yes. In this movie. He's somewhere along the way, the timelines shifted, and uh, he went from being Babe Jensen to Babe Hansen now in this movie. Um, I already mentioned about like how he brings a nice kind of weight to what's happening. Because he was such a sort of a happy-go-lucky character before, now he's like, you know, feels like he's been through 30 years worth of stuff. Yeah, so much stuff he had to change his name. Yeah, like I don't know. Oh, he's there you go. he's yeah. trying to dodge some sort of. Uh, <laughs> but if you're child changing, if you're changing or... your name, like maybe the one Babe, the more uh, I, you know, uh, unusual name would be the one to change. And it's I like 
you would assume it would be like his nickname or something. Right. But I feel like it shows up like, I mean, in the paper he's referred to as. Yeah. But I mean, you know, Babe Ruth. I don't know what his real name was, but they people would call him Babe. Yeah. It was a common. I know uh, Curly from the Three Stooges, his nickname was Babe. Not that Curly was his real name. Like, Curly was his stage name. Yeah, they needed a nickname yeah. for Curly. <laughs> his real name was Jerome. Curly was his stage name. But was his, his, his friends and family always just called him Babe. Hmm. There's, there's some stooge trivia for you. <laughs> it's, um, what's, <laughs> what's amazing is that they do, they take the time to reintroduce these characters. Yeah. And we're like, yay, they're back. These guys, we love these guys. Oh, look how cute and old they are. And oh my God, they're being murdered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that, very upsetting. Well, that's what I was actually going to ask. Is this, because uh, it, it's an, this movie really starts to feel like um friday the 13th part two friday the 13th yes where the Karis really feels like jason Voorhees, michael myers so um and this movie begins and it's an example of yeah like friday the 13th part two where it's like the main character of the previous film is killed at the beginning of the sequel after a lengthy flashback after <laughs> an 11 minute flashback in a 60 minute movie uh for the mummies too, not Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, would you consider Karis to be sort of like the first true slasher villain? Um, because I, a lot of the hallmarks are there in this series that would go on to be what make Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers who they are. I try very hard not to use the word first with such things because. I can't definitively know, you know, um, but he's, these are closer to slasher films than Psycho is. And the Psycho gets brought up in like, oh, it's like a proto slasher all the time. And it's like, yeah, there's elements. Mm-hmm. I would say it comes more from these mummy films in the forties. Yeah, for sure. I mean, cause this is like, this is a string of four movies where your, your killer is this like unkillable monster who doesn't mm-hmm. speak who uh sort of begins killing for we, he starts killing people without any sort of almost indiscriminately um he has a motive but like as the films go on it became he becomes uh, the i feel like the, the 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 body count gets higher as he just sort of winds up killing random more random people and it just feels so much like you're watching the friday the 13th series and there's also that thing about um, no matter how fast somebody in the Friday the 13th movies is running, right. Jason will just kind of have that like... Or Michael Myers. Yeah. yeah, they'll just be walking fine, but they'll still get them. Yeah. And uh, the mummy can't really move that fast. <laughs> no. But he will get across town very quickly. He'll even go to, uh, I think, New York City is where the Scripps Museum is. I'm not sure how he got there. Um is the Scripps Museum in New York? I don't know where the Scripps Museum is. Is it in Boston? That would make sense. That would make if... more sense because Mapleton, where uh, the Mummy's Tomb takes place in Massachusetts, um, it's also this is also interesting because it's taking the mummy out of Egypt and into America. Yeah, horror comes home. Yeah, and exactly like, and we're in this like residential uh, town. And you get these scenes of just, like, you know, these idyllic, like, small-town life. And 
slowly there's a shadow descending upon them. Yeah. And the people just wake up and they're like, oh my god, there's a shadow. You know, they call the cops, like, there's a shadow. And he's just like, what? Shut, shut up. Go to, go to bed. Mm-hmm. Hangs up. Like, you'd think in a small town a sheriff would be like, oh crap, there's like a peeping Tom out there or something. I'll go check this out. But this guy does not care until people die. Then right. he actually, then I actually kind of like this guy. The sheriff, that is. Yeah, it's, it's like the mayor in Jaws, you know. Not as extreme as the mayor of Jaws. <laughs> no, but it's, you know, it's that... Uh, Not somebody that who's trope. presented with evidence of danger and then ignores it for money. <laughs> right. More somebody who's just like, well... I mean, and this is something in the 30s with the rise of fascism in, like, uh, Germany and Italy and Japan. You know, people were like, oh, well, it can't happen here. The sheriff's just like, oh, well, pff, this is a nice small town. Nothing bad happens here. Right. Although... Doesn't he say something that's like, oh, this is just one of those fiend murders? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> this is just one of those fiend murders. We got the fiend around. Yeah, like, who, like... Who's the fiend? Why is he murdering people? Like, I would assume that it was like, oh, he's been reading about these murders in, like, maybe bigger cities or something. But to dismiss them, be like, ah, oh, it's just a fiend murder. <laughs> and it is interesting with, like... I mean, you know, there's the rise of fascism in the 30s, and then this is a film made after America has gone into World War II. And, uh, you know, there's some paranoia about, you know, foreign people on our shores, maybe some spies or something. Right, right. And as soon as something weird is happening, and it involves, you know, like, oh, well, there's a mummy. Oh, they're from Egypt. You know, there's this Egyptian guy over here. He must know about it. Let's go ask him. But we'll bring our torches. Yeah, gotta light the torches. (laughs) And it's like, they're right. They're right that this... That that's the guy, yeah. Yeah, and like the film seems to be... I would say the film, uh, not necessarily any of the individual people attached to the film, but the film as a whole. Like, if the film was a person, if you were to pull that person... And say, do you think it's right that the president has ordered U.S. citizens who happen to be Japanese into internment camps? The film would be like, oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I gotta, think Gotta root out the spies. Gotta root yeah. out the, uh, yeah, the enemies. And I think, like, that whole thing tied in with the, uh, the draft notice accompanied with the patriotic music. Um, this is a World War II film, like, through and through. Mm-hmm. It's very it's xenophobic, and um, it's pro mob rule, which is odd because children of the night. <laughs> no, that's the that's the mob with their yeah. <laughs> oh, they've heard me talking shit about them. They're coming to get me. <laughs> get them! Where's my tiki torch? Um, but I mean, the Nazis basically that was mob rule, so it's weird that like oh we'll use mob rule to fight against mob rule. But, I mean, if this isn't something that the filmmakers are sitting down and consciously thinking about, then, yes, it gets muddled when, you know, like, 70-odd years later, we're trying to analyze it in that fashion. Especially in light of, uh, we're doing this on August 13th, 2017, and this has been a rough weekend involving uh, torch-wielding hate mongers. Yeah, yeah. And in Nazis too. Yeah, ironically, straight up Nazis. Feels like we are kind of back in. I don't know what time period, but uh, it's unfortunate. 
hopefully uh, if somebody's listening to this years from now, they'll be like, what are they talking about? I don't even remember that. Yeah, and not and, like, oh, that was the start of everything. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just try and be optimistic and uh, maybe not delve too deeply into that topic at this mm, moment. Yeah, no, let's yeah. stick to mummies. Yes. Um, what is interesting about those torch-wielding uh, villagers is, am I wrong, but are there are there uh, shots taken directly from Frankenstein or you, Bride of Frankenstein? You are right. Frankenstein, when they're getting on the boats, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a shot in the cemetery, too that I feel like is from maybe Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, because they do go into a cemetery in Bride of Frankenstein. I didn't catch that one. I caught the one from Frankenstein. Yeah, well, it's funny because, like, they, they go to uh, to get um, the the guy who... The, 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 they go to get the priest, and they shoot him, and then they're like, oh, look over there, the mummy, he's walking through the cemetery. And then they sort of cut to what looks like a shot straight out of Bride of Frankenstein of them running through this you know insanely gothic uh cemetery with big you know elaborate tombstones and stuff but then there's that yeah there's that other shot of them going to the boats um yeah i mean for a movie that is only an hour long there's a lot of uh, reused footage yeah like i sort of said before the first 11 minutes of the movie are pretty much entirely flashbacks to the previous movie Um, and they leave in it's clearly Tom Tyler. Yeah. It's weird that they wouldn't reshoot it with Lon Chaney Jr. Because, I mean, they're playing up his involvement like with his star billing and everything. Because um, they took the time to put Tom Tyler into the old Karloff footage. You'd think they'd want to be like, oh, this is definitely a Lon Chaney Jr. film. Right. Hey, y'all, come on and see the new Chaney. But, um, no. It's just, they just wrap him up. And, um, you know, over the years, people have been like, well, it was mostly just a stuntman in there. They just used Cheney for close-ups, which, uh, it's not true. <laughs> um, but there definitely is a stuntman. You can, at the end of the movie, you can definitely see, uh, some stunt work in there with the, uh, the fire. Right, right. Which, again, like the set from Green Hell that they use in The Mummy's Hand, that big sort of, like, southern mansion that gets set on fire there uh that was uh, also uh, dark oaks and son of dracula ah yeah, that makes sense and uh several other universal films actually it's amazing how i, can, I like i just watched that movie like yeah. I, i've watched both of these the, the son of dracula and uh mummy's tomb within a span of a week and a half maybe two weeks and i don't piece it together but then when you say it i'm like oh it totally is the same mansion yeah i usually don't notice stuff like that either until like i'm reading about it later and i like that i don't notice yeah like you would think that you would but it is this weird trick that your mind does where it's like because it's just totally recontextualized you don't notice it right away yeah um so yeah the mummy's uh tomb Karis kills all of the uh, all of the characters from the, the from the movie previously, and uh, centers around Steve Banning's son and his uh, bride to be, who I forget what her name is or her character's name. But this sort of begins a trend that actually did start in the first in in the, the Mummy's Hand, where the high priest winds up stealing away. Uh, Marta and is like oh no you're too beautiful to kill I'm going to 
you give you eternal life and you can be you know the high priestess yeah this is the dangers of sexual repression these are priests who are trying to keep themselves pure mm -hmm. and they're just you just imagine that they're just raised in these like egyptian uh like well, the equivalent of like a monastery right with just, just kept all, away from the world all other men you know no no girls around yeah you know and uh <laughs> as soon as these priests get out into the world and they see this like beautiful young woman they're like oh Ra, help me <laughs> help me in my moment of temptation i must not you know and it's just like it's crazy so yeah in uh, mummy's tomb we have the the priest character sees uh you know uh the the fiance and immediately he's like i must have her for me she, you you shall be my bride and uh this carries on in the next two movies yeah and like in the mommy's hand i think george zuko uh he he's always got that like devious glint in his eye like in all of his roles and i think he plays that moment really well when all of a sudden he realizes like oh my god i need this girl's vagina in uh, Mummy's hand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because um, he was, he's one of those, I mean, you know, the big ones, you know, there's Karloff, Lugosi, Cheney. And then there's that second tier with, like, Lionel Atwell. George Zucco was, like, right there next to him. He would often play, like, mad scientists and stuff. And he has a great cameo as Professor Lampini at the beginning of House of Frankenstein. Um, and I feel like he doesn't always get his due, but in the in these mummy movies, which he inexplicably keeps showing up in, <laughs> yeah. uh, he 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 makes a lot of what in at least uh, Tomb and Ghost is a very small role. Hand he owns, he owns Mummy's hand. He yeah, yeah. Choose every bit of scenery in the best way. But yeah, he at the beginning of the Mummy's Tomb, you know, we we thought he was dead at the end of Hand, and then he, you know, he comes back uh, because he wasn't really dead; he just hurt his arm. And then he, you know, passes the torch to Rambe and then nods off. We think he's dead, but nope. Yep, at the, at the beginning of Mummy's Ghost. Yeah. There he is again. It's like every movie has to start with uh, with the caretaker passing on the mantle of the next high priest. But I definitely noticed in the Mummy's Hand and the Mummy's Tomb, he's billed as Andweb. And then... In Ghost, he's just billed as High Priest. Hmm. So there is a possibility... That he's supposed to be playing just another character. Yeah, maybe... And we don't know how much time has passed in between... Yeah, he could be Andoeb's twin brother. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, yeah, so the so tomb ends with uh, with Karis being consumed in a, in a fire in the Banning Mansion. Um... But we find out at the beginning of Mummy's Ghost, which came out two years later in 1944, uh, that no, apparently Karis is still alive, as is uh, George Zuko, the high priest. And he's still alive, and he's like, oh no, you, you John, he enlists John Carradine, says you got to go to America and get Karis back, along with uh, Princess Ananka, who had been brought to America and has been residing in this in the uh, museum uh, since. Steve Banning retrieved her and brought her back to America in uh, Mummy's Hand. Um, I like that his mission changes. Because in, in, in Hand, it's protect the tomb. Right. And then in Tomb, <laughs> it's it's vengeance. Yeah. And then it's, in it's, Ghost, it's... It's you know, just, just bring, bring him back. back, you know, like, we keep yeah. failing, just bring him back, just, you know, I just want to get out of America, forget about all this, just 
just get them back here. You know, forget about everything else. Don't, don't, you know, kill anybody who gets in your way, but like, just, you know, let everything alone. Let's just cut our losses here and just get them back. What do you think Karis was doing between the fire at the end of Tomb and when he just kind of like walks out of the woods? Yeah, you know, I was kind of disappointed because I was hoping for a shot of him returning to life somehow or seeing how he you know in the in the pile of you know the 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 rubble of the burned down mansion or something and seeing him actually come out but we don't get any sort of explanation of how he survived the fire he doesn't appear to be fire damaged whatsoever he was frozen in ice in a waterway beneath the house (laughs) yeah just like uh, frankenstein's monster um yeah, he just shambles out of the woods and without any sort of explanation at all. And no, and the townsfolk haven't been like, you know, oh yeah, that mummy's still around, you know? And it's just like, oh yeah, I'm back. It's after John Carradine comes to America and he lights the tana leaves, which now the tana leaves are like this uh, this thing that he knows when they're being when they're being made. Well, the professor brews them before John Carradine even gets there. That's right. Because the professor gets killed, and then they got that other guy who figures out, oh, this says nine. Yeah. Nine tenna leaves. Um, I like how the professor is in this movie. He, he just had a very small role in the previous film, Tomb. And he comes back, and he's sort of like the bridge between the two movies, mm. which I kind of like. And I like how he teaches the events of the last movie in like a college class i thought it was pretty cool like this is totally real world it's being taught in classes now that like oh yeah the mummy came back to life and he was out there and he killed people like that's just fact like in this world of that these characters exist in it's like it's not something to be disputed it's not a supernatural occurrence it's just like oh yeah that totally can happen and it I feel like it works better than just showing us a lot of footage again. Exactly. I was worried that, like, okay, is this movie going to start with a whole bunch of flashbacks? Um, but I like the, the college setting, and it's centering around this, this young group of teenagers who don't really have anything to do with uh, the, the, the happenings of the previous films. And in that way, this movie starts to feel even more like a modern-day slasher because it's centered around these teens. Um, and Karis becomes a little bit more indiscriminate with who he's killing. There's that, like, he's in the barn, uh, where he, which just reminds me of Friday the 13th Part 3, <laughs> where Jason spends most of the movie in a barn and just waits for people to wander in. And so he's, you know, Karis is in the barn, and he, you know, the, the farmer runs in, he kills him. And then the uh, the wife comes in and finds the body. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just funny. Does Penis go in the barn? Penis Almost. does not go in the barn. No, that was a different dog. Oh, okay, that's right. Hi there, Penis. You been a good boy today? Missed you, Poppy, didn't you? Yeah, Penis, of course, being uh, the name of the dog that is owned by Tom. The young hero of the movie. The subtitles say peanuts, but he clearly says penis. All I, the last time he says it towards the end of the movie, it sounds like peanuts. Yeah, 
But when he first walks into like an office and he's. I forget what he says. Like, here, penis. Like, yeah, and it's confusing because you're just like, oh, wait, what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's talking to the dog? Like, what? You named the dog penis? What the? Yeah, I was very confused. Come on, penis. And then we, um, in this film, we sort of revive a topic from the Karloff mummy, which is uh, reincarnation. Right. And the idea that the, the princess has uh, taken a new form in modern times. Yeah, a girl who has some sort of Egyptian descent named Amina. Uh, which is interesting because there's a little bit of a almost Dracula connection there with Amina. Mm-hmm. Her character's name is Amina. And she's being seduced and sort of, you know, comes out of bed and walks across the across the, the yard in her white, shiny gown. Um, it just reminds me of Amina. But, uh, yeah, she sort of has has the uh, the soul or the spirit of princess ananka within her and uh it causes her hair to turn white and it, she has these two streaks which is very reminiscent of the uh, the bride of frankenstein especially when she's being carried because her hair is hanging behind her so it looks like it has that sort of upward yeah uh, uh hairstyle that the bride of frankenstein has and those streaks are are right in those same spots and i'm like man you know they're totally like referencing this stuff it's odd when um when tom first notices it it cuts to a close-up of the hair but it's not authentically a close-up right it's like a blown up shot yeah they they artificially uh well in post-production they blew up the shot to get a close-up but it's clearly like it's just like really bad quality and yeah, like, it might have looked a little better back in the 40s but mm-hmm. um it was the way it's yeah it happens also in uh in tomb uh i don't remember what the context was but i remember there was another shot where again it shows the heroine of that film uh but i don't think there was any like reason why we needed to go really close with her in that one but in the mummy's ghost it's like oh so that we definitely notice that hair as if we don't notice it on our own anyway because oh my god there's Bride of Frankenstein hair in there yeah for sure um and this is the movie where uh I feel like Lon Chaney has a bit more to do as Karis where yes Karis uh starts to show a little bit more of um his old self like there's a little bit more humanity in him than just a mindless shell of a killing machine the whole scene in the museum yes when um you know he's he's about to finally be reunited with his love and then suddenly the body is just gone he has this great expression on what we can make out of his face yeah (laughs) of disappointment and that i think you know i don't know if he just like learned some new tricks in the last like a uh, couple years of making horror movies or something but like he, he i think he's like up to his pantomime level a little bit well i think the makeup is different in uh mummy's ghost than it was in mummy's tomb because mummy's tomb i think both of his eyes are completely covered his face is just completely encased and in mummy's ghost one of his eyes is definitely visible through yeah so I think they might have like loosened up, loosened it up a bit, and made it so that he could just get some little bit of emoting. 
like the fire at the end of the mummy's hand like when when Karis was set on fire at the end of that movie that fire caused his eyes to seal up because in that movie he had very distinct eyes that in post-production they like drew them black right um so like that fire caused that to happen but then the fire at the end of tomb <laughs> caused them to or whatever whatever happened in between tomb and ghost maybe he wandered off into the woods found a blind hermit and hung out there for a while as he healed i don't know yeah exactly but yeah, and he's just, he's clearly very upset in that scene, and it works really well. And, um, when he attacks that guard in the scene and, uh, throws his head through the glass there... Yeah, I was worried for that actor. The way he responds afterwards, but, like, it, he does, like, the take, and then all of a sudden, it's almost like it's real, because the actor suddenly grabs his head and makes a noise, like, <gasps> or Yeah, something. and, uh, you can see Lon Chaney kind of pull him back away from the uh the glass because yeah. like okay so it's like he grabs onto the guard and he throws him into this uh glass door and it's it is very like it looks like real glass like it didn't look like it might have been uh you know prop glass like uh, candy glass or something like that but it definitely uh i don't know it seems yeah that actor got injured that was not supposed to happen that way Really? Okay, so the glass was... was supposed to break. His head was not supposed to be like in it. Okay, like, yeah, because he because he, he kind of shoved through the, the 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 window pane, and there's these big huge chunks of glass like falling, and uh, there's a moment where I was like, oh my gosh! And yeah. Lon Chaney pulls him out. Um, it was almost like a you know guillotine if he had sort of if his uh, or guillotine I say. Uh, if if his head had been under there as this glass is falling. Yeah, and that's a, that's probably a combination of the limited visibility he had while he had his mummy makeup on. Yeah, he's only had um, one eye, so he doesn't have any sort of depth of... Uh... And also whatever he might have been imbibing to fortify himself against the <laughs> rigors of the job. Right. Which, uh, that, that was an ongoing problem throughout his career as an actor. But that is a great scene. I, I love yeah. just watching him just tear the museum apart he just smashed everything and that was the first moment where i'm like oh okay there's more to this mummy than just you know a soulless monster yeah he has his own wants and desires he's not just a just a soulless slave and it feels like in this movie that he's just like he's just tired of it all like he doesn't want to go on killing like he just wants to be united with ananka that's his the main thing and when he's denied that he's just like he goes into a rage but the way that the movie ends where it's like he finally has Ananka and he just wants to escape from everybody who's chasing him he just wants it to be over and he kills the priest he turns on the priest in this movie which is the first time that that's happened yeah um he kills John Carradine and uh takes Ananka and she's like withering away into uh an old corpse and he just wanders off into the swamp and just goes beneath the beneath the water and it's just like he just wants to rest in peace but it's denied him he does not get to rest peacefully no and i think it's uh it, the way that, that the way that uh, curse or ghost i should say the way that ghost ends is also interesting because Usually in these uh, in these horror movies, there's usually a, a a girl who's in trouble, who's the damsel in distress, 
And usually, by the end of the movie, they are saved from Dracula, from the monster, from, you know, whoever it is who's after them. The mummy. But in this movie, she gets it bad. Like, she, her body withers away into yeah. almost dust and is brought underneath the swamp. And that's just how the movie ends. It's very similar to the ending of Son of Dracula in the, not necessarily ex- like what the exact events are, but just the mood and like the downbeat right. way it happens. Yeah, downbeat. And where it's like we have the, uh, the, the male hero, the sort of the male love interest of the damsel in distress, who is now like sad because he, he's lost her, you know? Um, yeah, it's just interesting. I wasn't expecting it in this movie. I wonder why they went that route. Like, I'm wondering if it was, like, if it could have been a response to uh, some of the films Val Luton was producing over at RKO, which um, they tended to be pretty downbeat. Um, I really don't know. Because it seems like, you know, if these films are what they're often viewed at. They're just, like, random studio product that's being churned out one after another. Um it seems like that's not the way they would have ended. Like yeah. somebody actually took the time to sit and be like, Oh, let's make everyone sad. Let's, right. um, let's take this to its logical conclusion. Maybe not logical, but uh. <laughs> well, my question would be like, because this movie ghost came out in uh, 1944. Yep. As did its sequel. Mummy's curse came out just a few months later. So I'm wondering, like, was, did they know before they made Ghost, like, oh, we're going to do another sequel? So maybe they left it a bit open-ended for another movie? I don't know if I would call that open-ended. Well, yeah, you're right. You're right. That is pretty final. But I mean, I guess, like, have, because I'm just expecting the resolution with the, with the girl to be saved, you know? Maybe they're like, oh, well, you know, we'll leave that. That's another story. But, I mean, you watch Curse, and it doesn't seem like there was any thought about what came before it, really, uh, as far as continuing that story. Yeah. They sort of just take the the events of it and be like, okay, well, where did we leave off? Oh, uh, Karis and Inanka were in the swamp. Okay, well, swamps. Hmm, swamp. Oh, so it must be in uh, the bayou, right? Louisiana? Okay, yeah. So that's where it is now, and uh, 25 years later... Even though nothing has has changed around them. no attempt to make it feel like it's twenty five years later or in the future or anything like that, and that's I love that about about these movies. I think it's um, these films' depiction of the future is more accurate than Back to the Future Part Two's depiction of the future. Because <laughs> the way that let's say the seventies and the nineties are portrayed in the Mummy movies. Right. Is closer to way that the way they actually were than two thousand fifteen in the Back to the Future trilogy is portrayed in those movies. Yeah, I guess you're right. Because I mean, like, oh, they don't have the right cars or wardrobe, but aside from oh, that, yeah. yeah. So, Mummy's Curse uh, begins with a musical number. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a bit shocking when you're watching these all together because it just it's just an, it's just a tonal shift. Yeah. <laughs> and it suddenly feels almost like uh, I don't know some of the uh, European set 
uh, universal horror films, like in the Transylvania kind of uh, vibe. Yeah, with like the Gypsy Caravan and the yeah folk songs and everything, and like yeah. Frankenstein's Village. So actually, before we move on uh, with Curse, uh, there's just a couple more things to talk about with Ghost. There's this very ambiguous final voiceover as they're sinking into the swamp. And it mentions the curse of Amun-Ra. And I'm curious about who exactly it's referring to as being cursed. The fate of those who defy the will of the ancient gods shall be a cruel and violent death. I mean, I guess John Carradine's character went against the gods and he has been killed. So there could be that. But also there's just this girl who happens to be the reincarnation yeah. of Ananka. Well, I think it's interesting because I, I think the curse definitely is applying to her. Because if we think about it, like, the name of the movie, Mummy's Ghost, I think that refers to the ghost of Ananka. Because that's the ghost in question. That's the that's the spirit that inhabits this girl. Yeah, That's the mummy's ghost. The mummy's... Like she is also a mummy. Yeah, because she is yeah. a mummy. Ananka is... Uh, yeah, so the ghost leaves the mummy and goes into this girl and then the movie ends with the the voiceover of the curse which leads right into the mummy's curse which is also about ananka yeah the girl she's the one who's cursed the situation reminds me so much of um tip from the oz books who's a character who always makes me sad in the, uh, the marvelous land of oz yeah and he's just like he's just this kid and he's living his life Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, one day, you know, spoilers for the Oz books, uh, I guess. Um, you know, one day he finds out that like, oh, I've never actually been a little boy at all. I'm actually this girl named Ozma. That's right. And all of a sudden, he's just her. Yeah. And it's almost like Tip never really existed. And that's like this character in the Mummy's Ghost. It just it makes me sad. Like, what was all, all the years she was living before the events of this film just kind of, like, don't matter. Yeah. Because she's cause always she's... just really been an Anka. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I love the Oz books. Mm. And I haven't... Uh, but at the same time, like, I have never really thought about the Tip and Ozma thing. Because that is a weird thing. A part, that's a part of the story. Yeah. You'd think that the Marvelous Land of Oz would be, like, a, I don't know, a pop, popular among the transgender community. Yeah. That was the first sequel, right? Yes. Yeah. Huh. That would be weird to adapt that book today, because I don't know how you would really go about that. It would be, be kind of controversial. There is a low-budget musical version out there. I've never seen it. I hear it's horrible. Um, no, it's a more innocent time when you could do things like that, and people wouldn't read too far into it. <laughs> Another odd thing about the mummy's ghost is there's so much time devoted to setting up this booby trap for the mummy they dig this 10 foot deep a 10 pit. foot deep hole in this woman's front yard or something. yeah it's like ridiculous and then they're just like all right we're gonna go in here we're gonna brew the tana leaves we're gonna brew nine of them because that's mm -hmm. what this thing says we're just gonna wait for the mummy to come and the mummy doesn't come the mummy smells it in the air you can see him sniffing like looking around and be like hmm i smell tana leaves brewing yeah but he never takes the bait no this old lady runs away from the mummy and she almost falls into the pit but they catch her at the last minute yeah and that's the closest thing we have to a payoff with the pit 
Which isn't, yeah, it's unfortunate. And every, but everybody leaves the house. Yeah. So the pit's still there. You can imagine somebody being like, you know, like the next day the postman comes walking up to deliver the mail and he falls down the pit. <laughs> I'm just picturing like Wes Craven watching this movie like, but what about the pit? What about the pit? Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's what inspired him to do everything that he yeah. ever did in his filmography. It's like, all of my booby traps are going to pay the fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Ah. But, uh, so yeah, yeah, moving on to The Mummy's Curse. Um, Karis being able to ignore the tana leaves and focus on Ananka is like, okay, my love is stronger than my addiction. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And it, well, it's it's sort of him being like, yeah, I'm not listening to the priests anymore because it's the it's this priesthood that has kept him alive with this Tanaflu at all this time, yeah. and just turned sort of turned him into their slave, to do whatever they desire. So him denying the Tana leaves, and then killing John Carradine when he suddenly is going to give the Tana fluid to his Ananka, that's him shunning the uh, the ways of the priesthood, and you know, carving his own path. Yeah, the priests are the curse. Yeah. Because yeah. they're just... Uh, they're the ones keeping all this stuff going. There's there's not even... I mean, if you look at the Tana Leaves as being like this biological fact, there is nothing supernatural about these movies. Right. It's just, uh, oh, they give them this stuff to keep them going. And uh, if the priests weren't there, everything would be fine. And the archaeologists could just, like, rob all the graves they want or whatever they're doing. And, like... Yeah, and Karis would just be content to just lie. Yeah. Just be dead. So, on to Curse, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yes, the devil's loose and he's dancing with the mummy. Beautiful. I'm shocked that wasn't on the poster or the, the trailer, which has the tagline about his tomb world or something. <laughs> the trailer has this weird line about... uh. Yeah, the mummy emerges from his tomb world. I love... <laughs> so that line about dancing with the mummy, that comes up twice in the film. One time, the character of Gooby just randomly says it. The devil's on the loose and he's dancing with the mummy! And then later on, he goes to wake this guy up. <laughs> and he... <laughs> the guy, he just wakes up, he comes out of his tent, and he's like, what's going on? And Gooby says... The mummy's on the loose he's dancing with the devil! What are you talking about? And the guy's just like, what? <laughs> like, can you imagine if you just got woken up in the middle of the night and you're like, oh, what's happening? And someone says that to you. <laughs> you're just like, shut up. Go, but what? Gooby. <laughs> <laughs> and to somebody who hasn't seen the mummy or, or is, you know. He's the most skeptical character in it. He's the one who's just like, uh, he, he's, he's, he's not a likable character, really. <laughs> He's just this, this no-nonsense guy who's like, all right, we got to just take care of this stuff. There's no mummy. What the hell are you guys talking about? And then he's got this uh, African-American stereotype yelling in his face in the middle of the night. Yeah, an, an unfortunate African-American stereotype, uh, which that definitely, like kind of what we were saying in the last movie in, uh, uh, or no, in uh, Tomb. Tomb, how it very, it dates it in in the 1940s the character of Gooby also uh, unfortunately dates it it's nothing too like severe but it's you know yeah it's really just the way he talks is seen as like stereotypical does he really do anything like buffoonish or anything well he's cowardly I don't know he's like 
he's the most uh, uh, hysterical. Okay. And I don't know if that's a stereotype or whatever, but it's definitely it doesn't it's not flattering betrayal. And there is a moment at the end when um, the group is descending upon this uh, monastery, and Gooby sort of like stops and his eyes kind of bug out a little bit, and he holds back, and you think like, oh, he's too afraid to go on. Then later it's revealed, oh, he stopped because he found Ananka. He found the the yeah the Ananka's money yeah. yeah. Um. Speaking of Ananka, in in this movie, I think one of the best scenes of the whole series is in this movie. When one Ananka the, comes out of the ground. I'd say one of the best scenes in the entire universal horror cycle. It's And it's in the middle of this film, which isn't... It's not a great film. I enjoy no, the film. No. But I think it's the weak, scene, I think it's the weakest of the of the mummy films. We can we can talk we can try to rank them later maybe but it's uh, hard. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this scene is uh really well done. And like the the way the camera tracks, the music, the acting all together and it's in the, in the pacing of it, you know, cuz this also isn't a very long movie. All these movies are just like just over an hour long. Which makes, which is nice because it makes them easy to watch and they're, you know, digestible. Um, you, know, you can watch them all in one afternoon, pretty much. But, uh, but yeah, this scene takes its time. You know, it's not just like, so basically, it's it's because as we leave in the in the last movie, Karis and Ananka are under the are in the swamp. Then we jump ahead twenty five years later, it's Mummy's Curse, and there's this uh, construction crew who's digging up the swamp. They're gonna build some something some property on on the land or i don't really know what they're doing but um so there's a bulldozer that is t carving a path through this uh the swamp and then the camera just settles down on the ground and we get that sort of like classic horror iconic image of the hand coming up out of the ground and it really makes me wonder i'm like because she her emerging from the ground like that i'm like this is it really is like shades of the modern zombie in a lot of ways, like and and her, the way that she kind of come emerges, and then walks through the the woods, I'm like, man, this feels like George Romero just like totally took this for Night of the Living Dead. This series is far more important than people give it credit for. I think it had a lot of inspiration on the slasher film, and then the idea of these very slow moving monsters going after people but still being able to kill them. I think that's also like zombies yeah i think karis is also you could probably consider i mean he's an undead shambling creature i feel like uh you could say that maybe he's one of the first examples of what we consider to be like the modern zombie because there were zombie films before these but they were those those zombies were different they weren't undead corpses walking again they were sort of they were uh you know controlled by voodoo spells and things like that yeah and like there he's sort of like the link like the missing link between like the the pre-romero zombie and the post-romero zombie because he's still got like you know there's the high priests controlling him to a degree yeah and like the tana leaves are sort of like you know the voodoo spells and stuff but the way he behaves i think is closer to romero oh absolutely and uh, yeah, this uh, this moment where Ananka comes out of the out of her grave, it's striking. I like that it's like in full sunlight. 
Mm. But the, like it just has this really great look. The 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 way that the mud is on her just looks awesome. And uh, it's it's a haunting image. When I saw it in sixteen millimeter, it was <laughs> it was so odd. I was I've been very vocal about people not using their phones during movies, but something struck me about it, and I took my phone out and I took pictures of the screen. I don't know why. I was just like, I need to record this recording, even though I had the DVD already. Yeah, like, you've seen I, the movie, but it was just like something about the way it looked was just on like that this screen. is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, I need to take a few shots of this. That's a weird sentence out of context. <laughs> I need to take a few shots of this. <laughs> there's, you know, there's some very interesting like moments in Curse. Um, like I, I think it. You know, if you if you're not looking too hard into like the logic of it all, like it's a very well made film in the sense that there's, there's like little moments throughout. There's def- that's the moment definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. But then there's a shot like once she is, completely revived and she just seems to be like this normal woman, not normal. She's like this lost girl, sort of who, who like finds her way into civilization. Uh, there's this moment where she's just enjoying sunlight on her face. Yeah, yeah. And it's weird. It cuts to the sun. And if you look at that shot, I don't know how they did it, if it was just something about the way somebody might photograph the sun back then, or if it was some sort of trick shot. It appears as if the clouds are passing behind the sun. I think I think the clouds were superimposed or something. And, yeah, the way that it was composited just yeah just made it look like that yeah it just made i don't know it made the sun just seem you know it's like the sun god or something shining upon her not just the sun Mm. and then moments like um when what is the character's name uh what do they call her tant bert tanty tanty tant bert Uh, yeah the 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 woman bertha who's singing at the beginning of the movie um when she is attacked by Karis. Who is not... That's an interesting thing about this. He's not really going after her. He just goes to grab Ananka, and she tries and protect tries to protect Ananka. Um, she hits him, and dust rises from him. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember that happening any time in the series. Besides oh, it, that, like, it happens all the time. Throughout the movies? Yeah, yeah. He's always dusty. When he goes to grab things, like you'll see dust come flying off of him. Like, I, I've noticed it in all okay. the movies, yeah. For some reason, that was the first one that really popped out to me. But, like... And I, I every time that happens, I'm like, it's cool that like they that they uh, did that. Because hmm. I don't know what the, what kind of dust they're using, but it seems like they were always careful to, like, be like, okay, we, you know, before we shoot, get into this position, put the dust on them, and then do it so that the dust comes off. It's a cool, simple effect. I hope so. And it wasn't just, like, him being, like, covered in, like, just pounds of dust at all times, just to add to his misery. <laughs> yeah. Like, and then he goes to grab her, and he kills her, and then, like, Ananka gets away, and there's just so many moments when she's just out of his reach. Yeah. Like, when she's picked up by the car, and, like, there's just, and he kind of shows up just a little too late. Yeah. I feel like in this film, there's more times when he tries to kill somebody and fails. 
who does he attack in the tent? He goes, or does, does he kill somebody in the tent? It was, oh, the, the, uh, the, yeah, the doctor. He kills the doctor in the mm. tent. He kills the, um, a Cajun Joe. Who, what is it? He knows the swamps like he knows his finger. Yeah, I know the swamps like I know my finger. And, like, the other characters are like, we don't want to know how well you know your finger. Why are you telling us this, you gross guy? Go back to the swamp. My finger is my only friend. <laughs> I actually have a t-shirt um, from that Monster Bash I went to of Karis killing Cajun Joe. Oh. Yeah, I wore it yesterday. <laughs> yeah, the um, and then in this movie there are... There's another high priest... And he has his sort of like helper guy who you mentioned earlier as being like a just a German guy. Yeah. Um, he played a lot of Nazis. And he, you know, again, I mean, this is the same story as in with John Carradine in the last movie, uh, where he suddenly falls in love with the with the woman and decides that he wants her for himself. In this one, it's this uh, German assistant guy who sees Ananka. Or no, not Ananka. It's uh, the uh, the um, the other girl yeah. who's like the, bo- the who's like the construction boss's daughter or niece or whatever. I think niece. Um, he is like he, and it's almost more nefarious. This portrayal of like whisking a woman away than any of the other films because he's like, oh, I know where. Because uh, it's more realistic. Because he's like. Oh, follow me. I know where your boyfriend is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's over in this abandoned monastery over here. And she's like, okay, yeah, show me. And they, so they go, and, and she's like, okay, where is he? And he's like, oh, no, nobody's here. This is completely abandoned. And she looks at him, and there's that moment of like, oh, shit. And then he lunges towards her. And you know what was going down had, uh, you know, the... Peter Coe. The... Yeah. The, 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 the priest, priest comes in and is like, what the heck are you doing? We're not supposed to do that. And then but he it's... tries to kill her, and the German, it's like, clearly, it's like, no, like he tries to protect her. Like, no, 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 I don't want to hurt her. I was just going to rape her. Yeah, like... it's, it's like, it is, it, something about it just was like, oh my God, like, this is awful, because it just feels like something that, it just felt more, because it had nothing to do with, like, a mummy, you know, stealing her away, or like, oh, I will turn you into... My my priestess, you know, you shall be my wife, and you shall bear me a child, and all that. You know, there's none of that. There's no pretense of any of that. It was just like, hey, I'm going to trick this girl into following me into this abandoned place so that I can rape her. And, like, the priest in this one actually remains pure and dedicated to his mission, I believe, right? Yeah. At no point is he swayed. Mm-hmm. And that might be one of the reasons why he's, like, the worst not the worst he's like the least entertaining priest he's the most boring priest in them yeah he gets stabbed in the back by the german assistant yeah but he's just like i don't know i've only seen this actor peter ko in house of frankenstein um so maybe he was really great in a lot of other stuff but in those two movies well in house of frankenstein he's just this likable like romantic lead and like the first like dracula half of the movie and in this, he's just kind of wooden. Like, I think he's supposed to come off as kind of mysterious. Like, mm-hmm. oh, he's kind of like a sort of like a double agent. Like, oh, we think he's with these guys, but really he's like a secret priest. But he just, I don't know. He doesn't really come off as anything special to me. Yeah. He's, he's no John Carradine or George Zuko. Not oh, even for a sure. Tarambe. For sure. Yeah. He, he, I, I can't even conjure an image of his 
face into my head right now. He's like a lighter skinned Turan Bay, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got the fez and the mustache and But um Yeah, so this movie ends the end of the Karis series is uh Karis fights the German assistant guy and Ananka's a mummy again. Ananka is a mummy. The monastery collapses onto Karis. Um, and there's just sort of a throwaway line in the end of like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll dig out Karis and we'll take him and Ananka back to the museum. Yeah, not back to Egypt, where they should be, but back to, just back to that museum. That, yeah. You know. And they don't... In the audience, or me personally, I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this tragic love story. They're dead. And like, in the movie... The characters, they just, they don't give a shit. They're like, oh, well, I guess that's how she knew so much about ancient Egypt. Huh. And then they walk into the other room and they're already, like a second after seeing all this stuff happen, this girl mummified, the mummy, um, well, Karis, like, you know, caved in and everybody's Yeah, and this, dead. like, assi- the assistant, knife-wielding assistant who just tried to kill and rape them. And yeah, stuff. like, they walk into the room, the main guy's got, like, this fucking smirk on his face. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, we're going to go get married. And the uncle's like, okay. He's like, oh, you, thank you. You approve? He says, like, you know, oh, you can have her. And he's like, oh, thanks. And he's like, yeah, she's been no use to me ever since you walked in. And the niece is like, oh, thanks, you know, whatever. And then it's just like, it ends on every one of the, I mean, it's just so weird. It always ends on like a weird kind of hokey jokey moment. With the exception of uh, Ghost. Yeah, yeah. Ghost. Even the mummy's tomb. The Mummy's Tomb ends with uh, them, like, another weird looped line, actually, where they're get, they're getting out of a car, and they're like, oh, it's a good thing we were able to get away from the that party they had for us, or something. Yeah, because they, they just got married. Yeah. And they're going to go on... It seems like they're going to go on their honeymoon, but if you pay attention to the chronology, based on that telegram he got earlier, he's actually about to go to war. Yeah, and he's taking her with him somehow? I guess she's probably just riding on the train with him, and they're going to say goodbye, and then... Yeah, so they get out of the car, and then it's like all the crowd, or all the townspeople crowd around them and throw rice at them. Yeah. And it's just sort of, it just ends awkwardly. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like the filmmakers always cared about stuff that we weren't really that invested in. Yeah. Um, And that's what is nice about the ending of Ghost, is that it's just like, it's more of of a proper ending for the story of this mummy you know what i mean (laughs) and not just like you know these oh and they got married and whatever um so yeah it's it's a you know curse is an unfortunate way to end the series it feels like but but there i like that the mummy in the end kind of like i like how it turns into this story of these two mummies you know karis and ananka yeah uh I think that's cool. And especially when you put it into context of like, I don't know, if we, if we ignore the Brendan Fraser mummy films and we sort of think about this Tom Cruise one where it's like in that the mummy is a woman, you know, and it almost carrying on from that lineage of like, Oh, it evolved into this, uh, it's Ananka now, you know, but yeah, I think it would it, it would be nice if there was a uh, a proper end to the Karis story. I don't know how you do it. Maybe, you know, it's set in modern day time. 
and they say something like a hundred years have gone by gotta keep that loose weird timeline going so we're in like 2096 (laughs) (laughs) but it's like but we shoot it it would be like you know so it's like 10 years after the events of the events of the adventures of pluto nash no, it would take place in modern day times, in 2017. Okay, but we, we say, wouldn't say 2017, but right, we'd be like, okay, 100 years ago, this all happened. And, uh, and you, because I like to think, like, if they had just kept making Karis movies every two years, they would have, uh, you know, just kept up with modern filmmaking technology, you know? They would have gone to color, they would have kept improving, you know? So we, don't shoot it like it's taking place. Don't shoot it like it's a movie shot in the forties. Shoot it like it's a movie shot today. You can still, you know, make it feel modern and stuff. But it's just like, you know, every just it's about Karis and Ananka and like picking up where we sort of leave off. Where like maybe they're, I don't know where their their mummies are now, but give them a proper uh, proper send off. That would make an even stronger connection between this and the Friday the 13th series when you try to figure out how much time passed between each film when they just kept making (laughs) one after another every year. Right. Yeah, because it's like, oh, that was 10 years ago. How how old is Jason? Was that Jason? (laughs) How long has he been out there in the woods? What's going on? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So that's the the Karis Mummy series from Universal. Um, I guess just quickly before we wrap it up here, uh, of these four Karis films, how would you rank them? Which is your favorite? And Hand. which is your so Hand is your favorite? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I look at them, I'm kind of like if I were to rank them, I kind of feel like just in production order, they kind of feel like Hand is at the top, then Tomb, then Ghost, then Curse. I don't know. It's hard because um. Tomb has or, like. Or would you flip Curse and, and Ghost? That's really hard because like, all right. So Tomb has like this whole great first half where we're reintroducing the old characters yeah. and killing them off. Yeah. And then like Ghost has the that perfect ending. Yeah, the the back half of it, and I love the uh, we didn't talk about it, but the, but just the location that like Karis and John Carradine are in the end, where it's like that like mining. Uh, yeah, and I'm wondering, Tower. I'm wondering if that's, like, the same set they use in The Invisible Man Returns for, like, the climax of that film, where the bad guy's up on the, uh, he's in the coal wagon and it gets oh, dropped and everything. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just really, it's nice, it's cool looking, and I like them going off into the swamp and stuff, and Karis is really cool in that movie. And then Curse has that one scene. Amazing, yeah, zombie rising from the grave scene. Uh... Yeah, it's uh you know, I might I might put um I might put Ghost above above Tomb. It's hard to say. Yeah. I don't know. I hand is the best and then the three way tie for last. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like curse is the weakest. Okay. It's there's, as there's, a... there's there's things as a story I feel like it's like it's not I don't. I don't like. Uh, it's just like I don't. I don't know. I would. Everything, yeah, that's, everything that's happening. And it doesn't have from scene to scene. George Zuko like, or cool. John Carradine or anything like that. Yeah. Like yeah I mean, I like. I'm actually a fan of Martin Koslek. Koslek. I'll figure out how to pronounce it before we do next week because we'll talk about him a little bit more. Um, but yeah, okay. I'll put Curse last. 
if it if it wasn't a series, if there was just this movie, The Mummy's Curse, and it was on its own, you didn't have to try and figure out how it connected. Uh, I'd be like, oh, that's a really yeah, I like that. But it is hard to fit it into the series. Well, and it's not even just that. I just feel like I don't really like the char- like the archaeologist characters at all. Mm. What are they like? I, I'm just like what are, are they, like the construction thing going on? I'm not really. I don't really care about any of that. The dredging controversy. Yeah, I I do like the Princess Amanka. She's like the best part about the movie, hands yes. down. Yeah. Um. So that like like everything before her coming out, I'm just kind of like whatever. And uh, although I do like the scene of Karis uh, with uh, killing the, the the woman, the singing woman. Because you didn't like that song. No, the song is you know it's fine. It's just it's just a tonal shift. Yeah. I don't know. They, they definitely all have their their merits and and drawbacks. But yeah, I think I think Hand definitely beats beats them out. Hmm. But there's uh, I don't know. There is a certain kind of mood that I had dismissed uh, until rewatching them for this episode. Because uh, you know when I go back and I rewatch a lot of these Universal films. I'll go back and I'll rewatch like the Frankenstein movies because they're all really great for the most part. Like they, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of really good stuff there, and I like the continuing saga of the monster. Um, and I'll watch like the you know like Wolfman movies and stuff. But the Mummy is one that like I've seen the Mummy and I've seen the Mummy's hand the most because I'll be wanting to marathon through them and you just start to get i don't know i always would just fall out of it after you know somewhere in the middle of tomb i'm just like okay you know but rewatching them all now i'm like i'm i uh i agree with your thesis that they are they don't they aren't given as much credit as they maybe deserve cuz you know you watch them and with especially within the context of like the history of horror cinema and you can see on the screen like how much of an impact that they actually did have I think one of the things that's hurt them, uh, reputation-wise, is there's no, there's no real cult behind any of the, um, the filmmakers. Like you've got like, your Todd Browning supporters, your James Whale supporters, um, Carl Freund. Who name the four directors without looking at your phone or anything? <laughs> okay, um, Mummy's Hand was directed by Christy Cabane. I've always said Caban. I watched Caban, an episode Caban. of Trailers from Hell with Joe Dante where he said Cabane. So I have no idea. Um, and I remember that one because I'm like, okay, Christy. I'm like, oh, is that a, a woman director in 1940? But it's not. It's a man named Christy, right? Yeah. And I believe he directed Scared to Death, which was Lugosi's only color film. And then, okay. Um, was Curse directed by Reginald LeBorg? Or was that Ghost? I don't remember which one was Reginald DeBorg. He is in there. He's the only one close to being like a horror name. Right. Because he did a few of the Inner Sanctum films. He did The Black Sleep. Um, and he did Diary of a Madman with Vincent Price. But, now um, I'm trying to remember what the other two are. Um, and I don't think I can pull them out. Yeah. And I think that's one of the issues with uh, people like going to seek this out. And even, I mean, like The Black Cat, Edgar G. Ulmer, he's got his cult... Son of Dracula, that was Robert Siodmak. He was like 
this big like film noir director a few years later. Right, and he he went on to do Creature from the Black Lagoon. Or no, that was Jack Arnold. Okay, who? Okay, thinking of something else. Anyway, um, but yeah, the basically these are sought out. But I mean, Cheney enthusiasts, I guess, would be the ones who are like maybe like actively cheering these on. Nobody has really been too vocal about them. But I, I like them. Yeah. So, uh, what are we talking about next episode? As we wrap up our look at the Universal Horror Films. Well, uh, we're going to follow up this episode about uh, this uh, somewhat successful franchise, Karis the Mummy, with uh, kind of the last attempt at making a new franchise by Universal, which was... Um, trying to make a horror star out of rondo hatton rondo hatton who i've I've never i don't think i've seen a movie starring him uh so which films are we going to look at well we're going to look at the pearl of death which it was an entry in their successful sherlock holmes series with basil rathbone uh you don't really need to see any other sherlock holmes movies to get what's going on in the pearl of death it's, it, if you know who holmes is and who watson is you're good um, House of Horrors, which um, has Martin Koslack in it, and uh, this this was one of my favorite movies growing up, actually. Um, and then we're gonna end with The Brute Man, which was actually the end for Universal. Um, this is when they decided, like, all right, we're gonna stop all this horror stuff. They merged with International, became Universal International. And uh, the Brute Man actually ended up being distributed by PRC. They didn't even end up distributing it themselves. Oh, jeez. Because they had so little faith in it. And it's like, it's the last Universal Horror film, pretty much. All right. Well, that should be a, that should be a good one. So instead of a four or maybe five movie episode like this one was, uh, it'll just be three. Which <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully we'll be able to get through that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I enjoyed talking about the uh, the Karis films this episode. So thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time. Venus.